Day one, quiet speech. Today, when you try to get your child's attention, instead of yelling, do the exact opposite. Simply approach them and speak to them as quietly as possible. You can even experiment with whispering in their ear. I call this technique quiet speech, and while it may sound deceptively simple, it works like a charm. You see, if you've been yelling at your kids more than you'd like, that's the form of communication they expect. When you do the complete opposite, like approach them and whisper in their ear, that will be unexpected for them, which is why they'll instantly start paying attention. Simply walk up to them and give your instruction in the quietest possible tone. Their attention will be focused on you, not on their toys, surroundings or other people. They'll also be looking at your face, mouth and eyes and come even closer to hear you and understand you more easily. If they can't hear you, but you're near enough so they can see you speaking, that will trigger their curiosity. Especially if they see you aren't visibly angry or upset, but calm and collected. You can play around with quiet speech even when you're not directly next to your kids. Next time you use it, don't go directly to them. Do it from a few steps away, then progressively increase the distance between you and them. This way, they'll get used to the new normal. Quiet, calm communication. Plus, you'll train their attentive listening skills so they'll pay more attention to you. Your goal is to use the same tone of voice for everything, from instructions, demands and requests, to positive things that your kids enjoy, things they find important and interesting. For example, ask them what they'd like to eat for supper, or agree on a time to go to the playground, or ask them what they'd like for their birthday, and so on. This will make sure they pay attention because it's in their interest, because they won't want to miss out on something good. With consistent use of quiet speech, your children will start getting the signal when mum, dad talks, I listen. I wonder what they have to say this time around. And because they're kids, they'll start modelling you and speaking in a quieter tone themselves. It's a win-win. I encourage you to do the same thing with not just your kids, but your partner as well. You'll notice that this way of communication drastically decreases the amount of tension, stress and yelling within the whole family often instantly. Finally, there's one subtle thing you should pay attention to. As you use quiet speech, go slow. Don't rush it by speaking super fast. It will just confuse your kids and make you feel impatient. Say what you want to say in a slow, calm, quiet, collected way and see what happens. And to make it even easier to start using quiet speech, you can set reminders for yourself, either as Google Calendar invites, phone alarms or post-it notes on your bathroom mirror. Day two, the shoulder tap. When your kids are engaging in an activity, hanging out with friends, playing a video game or listening to music with their headphones on, just quiet speech isn't enough. That's why today you'll upgrade it so it works in those specific situations. When you attempt to get the attention from your kids, walk up to them and gently tap on their shoulder. Touching them to gently let them know you require their attention is not only more effective than trying to yell especially if they're wearing headphones. It also strengthens the bond between you and your child, as they're getting the feelings of warmth and affection from you, instead of anger and frustration. This way, every time you communicate with them, you're growing together, not apart. And the stronger the bond you can build with your kids, the more likely they are to listen to you and follow your instructions. Just think about it. Who are the people that your kids respect and listen to the most? the ones that they feel connected to the most. Once you have their attention, 
Continue with the quiet speech technique you learned and put into practice yesterday. Because you're already next to them, you can use a very calm and quiet voice, or even whisper. As you put the shoulder tap into practice, pay attention to a few things. The touch should be gentle. Do not shake your child or use rough touch. You want to be warm, not violent, and you want your kids to respond positively to your touch. Approach them from the front. Don't scare them or peek at their screen if they're using one and invade their privacy. Your goal is to get their attention, not monitor what they're doing. You can go one step forward and hug your child. Hugging your child will increase their self-esteem and improve the bond between you and your child. You don't have to hug them every time, but a good rule to strive for is that each of the parents should give each of your children at least one hug a day whenever possible. If your child doesn't want to be hugged in the moment, or if you're out in public, that's okay, don't force it, and try again the next day. Okay, that's it for today. Day 3. The No Yelling Policy There are three types of yelling, good, bad, and unconscious. Good yelling occurs when you yell in a dangerous, potentially life-or-death situation. That is when your child is crossing the road but doesn't see an approaching car. Bad yelling happens every time your kids don't listen, but there's a better, calmer solution available. You'll be able to stop the bad yelling as you go through this challenge. Finally, there's unconscious yelling. It's one of the most common types of yelling, and it can be easily avoided with a little bit of patience. It is entirely unnecessary and so subtle that many parents aren't even aware they are doing it. The unconscious yelling occurs in all the situations where you're physically too far from your kids to be able to use quiet speech. For example, when they're in the backyard of your house while you're inside, while they're at the playground, or while they're in their room upstairs in the basement, checking out a toy in a store. Most parents wouldn't consider yelling, it's dinner time, from the kitchen, so their kids can hear them in their rooms harmful, especially if their kids respond and immediately race to the dining room. It's so habitual that most parents don't even realise it. That's why I call it unconscious yelling. But unconscious yelling is harmful to your family, more than you'd think, because of three reasons. Let me explain. Number one, it sets the default tone of communication in your family. Most parents use unconscious yelling five to ten times per day. Don't believe me? Keep track of it for a day and see for yourself. As kids are amazingly good at mirroring adults, they'll receive a signal that it's okay if you yell and that it's okay if they yell back at you. This sets a bad example for the whole family and distracts everyone else in your home that's trying to enjoy some peace and quiet or concentrate on what they're working on. But there's more. Number two. If your kids don't hear you, it's often not their fault. Sometimes they're just too far away from you to hear you clearly, so they'll yell back, What? Or if your home has great sound insulation or thick doors, they really won't hear you. And you'll get frustrated and angry because you think they're ignoring you. The same is true if they're listening to music on a phone call, using noise cancellation headphones, concentrating on a video game they're playing, or even doing their homework. In short, more often than you think it's really not their fault that they can't hear you. And you have to keep yelling at them over and over again until you angrily storm into their room. Number three, in case there's a disagreement, it quickly turns into a yelling battle. Finally, even if they do hear you, but they're not ready to cooperate with you, or they'd like to negotiate with you, 
all of which we'll cover later in the program, there's very little chance you'll be able to avoid a full-blown yelling battle, which could be avoided if you were closer to them. Just think about how this situation would end if your kid is in their room and you yell at them, you, dinner is ready. Them, option one, no response. Them, option two, I'm not hungry. Neither of those situations would end well, right? Well, the good news is that with today's no yelling tool, you'll be able to avoid these situations, which you might encounter daily, altogether. You'll be able to do that by using the no yelling policy. This very technique is one of the main reasons why you'll never hear anyone yell in our house, even though it's a fairly large two-story house with a garden and a backyard. We simply have a rule. If you need to talk to someone, if it's not an emergency, come into their talking distance. This means that we don't yell when dinner is ready. When the postman or food delivery is at the door, or when we need help from one of our family members. Now, to be completely frank, if you're used to yelling all the time, this shift will take some getting used to, especially because it will require you to slow down and take a bit more time. But it's well worth it. Here's what I mean. For example, when dinner is ready, you might need to walk into every family member's room and notify them. Realistic cost, one to two minutes. Yes, that can be less convenient than if they just showed up. But look on the bright side, you're getting some daily exercise in. Yes, the food might be cold once you serve it, but you can plan for that next time and simply leave your food in the oven or on the stove and get everyone five minutes before it's ready. Or you can look at it this way. If it's important to your family members that the food is hot slash warm, they'll quickly pick up on your patterns and make it a priority to be a few minutes early next time. But realistically, nobody will die if dinner isn't scorching hot. And some people just care more about this than others. It's okay to let them make their own decision. But the good news is that these slight negative side effects are far inferior to the benefits you'll get from not yelling in your home all the time. There will be a lot less stress, way fewer yelling battles, and your patience won't be tested as much. In fact, many parents who successfully implemented this policy in their homes told me it trained them to become more patient and self-aware and wished they would have found out about it much earlier. That's why I encourage you to start using it today. Just test it out for a week and see what happens. You might be surprised. Now, before you run back to the real world, there are two additional tips I have for you to get the most out of this strategy. Number one, once you come into the talking distance, remember to use the quiet speech shoulder tap. These work really well with this strategy. Number two, don't just use this strategy with your kids. Use it with your partner as well. In fact, you can use most of the no yelling tools you'll master through this challenge with your partner or even with co-workers. They work like a charm. Finally, remember that the goal right now is to get your kids to listen without yelling. You're at the first part of your journey. Take things one step at a time. You won't become a perfect parent overnight. But you can get 1% better every day. So be kind to yourself and patient with yourself. If your kids still don't cooperate with you, or you don't know how to negotiate with them, or if they don't follow the instructions you give them, that's okay. You still did an amazing job avoiding a yelling battle in the first place. I'll help you solve other pieces of the parenting puzzle in the future, either in this challenge or future challenges you'll be able to participate in. So go on, give yourself a pat on the back for making it through the first few days of the challenge, living up to your commitment 
and working on becoming the best parent you can become for your kids. Day 4. Three-step education. Today, you'll learn how to stop nagging and repeating yourself. Instead, after you use the three-step education technique just three times, your kids will follow your instructions the first time you say something, not the tenth. To do that, you'll first stop using what I call seven-step education. This is the situation where you repeat yourself over and over again, at first nicely and calmly, then a bit more impatiently and loudly, until finally you lose it and scream at the top of your lungs with the hope that your kids will finally do what you ask them to do. Seven-step education looks something like this. Mum, can I turn on the TV? Yes, you can. Just make sure it's not too loud. Step one. Volume is too loud. Can you please turn the volume down a bit? Step two. Nothing happens. I said, can you keep the volume down? Step three. Still, nothing changes. Don't ignore me when I'm talking to you. Step four. Of course your child ignores you. Don't make me come over there. Step five. Radio silence. This is your last warning. Turn the volume down immediately or I'll do it myself. Step six. Your child stares at you but does nothing. I've had enough. Why can't you do what you're told to do? Why do we always have to fight? That's it. No more TV for you today. Step seven. You see the shock on their face as you storm towards them. Take the remote out of their hands and turn off the TV. You know what follows. First, make a commitment to yourself. You'll never let it get to step seven ever. The more you repeat yourself and don't act, the more your kids will expect this to happen, and the more likely they are to keep ignoring you. They're smart. They know if you always repeat the same thing seven times, you'll do it again. So it's natural they don't feel any urgency to listen to you the first time you say something. They're just sitting there and waiting to see what happens. Instead, you can now replace seven-step education with three-step education. Here's how it works. Step one, give a clear instruction. Step two, explain natural consequences if they ignore your instruction. Step three, take immediate action if they ignore the consequences. The first few times you use this strategy, you might need to use two to three steps, but within one to two weeks, just using the first step, giving a clear instruction will be enough as your child's brain will complete the rewiring process. Let's break this strategy down further. Step number one, give a clear instruction. Let's revisit the previous situation. Can you spot what's wrong with the instruction that was given to the child? Saying, yes, you can, just make sure it's not too loud. Study it and see what you can come up with. What could you improve? What did you come up with? Well, while at first glance the instruction seems just fine, there are two subtle problems with it. Problem number one, your child doesn't know what's too loud. Is that volume 15, 30 or 60 on the remote? Problem number two, what's too loud for you might not be too loud for them. If you don't want to enter a negotiation battle, you shouldn't let your child choose. You should decide what's acceptable for you at the moment. That's why this is a vague instruction. Vague instructions include words like soon, lower, later, a little bit. And they often confuse your kids, especially if today's low volume is different than yesterday's low volume. In this scenario, a clear instruction would be, yes, you can, but please put the volume to 15. There's nothing vague or confusing about this. The volume is either 15 or it isn't. Here are some additional examples of vague and clear instructions. Vague. Dinner will be ready soon. Clear. 
Please come to the dining room for dinner in 15 minutes. Vague. You can play video games for a bit if you'd like to. Clear. You can play video games until 6 p.m. Vague. We'll go to the park later. Clear. We'll go to the park after I shower and change. Please put on a fresh t-shirt and shorts and be ready at the door in 30 minutes if you'd like to go. Important. When you give clear instructions, it's important that you follow through with them. Only give instructions or make promises you're willing to commit to. Don't say, we'll go to the park at 6 and be ready by 7. If you let your child play video games for one hour, that's one hour. Not 45 minutes, not 65 minutes. You can give them a gentle reminder at 50 minutes to let them know they have 10 minutes left, but that's it. One last thing. When you give a clear instruction, don't forget about quiet speech, shoulder tap, and no yelling policy. Step number two. Explain natural consequences. If your kids aren't used to following your instructions, you'll need to give them some time to get used to it. But you shouldn't cut them slack. Kids hate inconsistency and like predictability. That's why the way in which you give instructions and the steps that follow, if they don't follow them, should be consistent. If they choose to ignore your instruction, they have to experience what I call natural consequences. This should happen within 15 seconds of giving the instruction. Don't mistake this with threats or punishments. These are gentle but firm boundaries that teach kids what follows as a consequence if they choose to ignore you and that doing that is not acceptable. But the choice of what they do is ultimately theirs. Just like it's your choice to not show up to work in the morning and deal with the consequences if you don't. Just like instructions, natural consequences should be clear and specific. For example, I told you to put the volume down to 15 if you wanted to watch TV, but you decided not to. Should I show you how to do it, or will you do it yourself? If you don't do it, I will turn off the TV, and you will not be able to watch it anymore today. Clear, specific, and simple. Notice how you're also giving them a way out in case they genuinely don't know how to put the volume down, so you're not blaming them for something they just don't know how to do. Now the choice is theirs. Either they turn down the volume, you can show them how to do it, or you'll turn off the TV. Those are the only three options that are acceptable for you. In some cases, natural consequences will be more harsh. In others, they will be less. But in either case, they should be appropriate for the situation. It's important to let your kids experience them so they can learn from them, as they'll have to do this in order to function well in life. Here are some additional examples of natural consequences. Clear instruction. Breakfast is ready. Please come and eat within the next five minutes so we're not late for school. Natural consequences. In this case, set a kitchen or phone timer for five minutes and explain natural consequences to them when the alarm goes off. Okay, time is up. If you don't want to eat your breakfast, that's fine, but I won't pack it for you. This means you'll be hungry until your lunch break. You might get more tired and won't have the energy for sports. Would you like to have your breakfast or would you prefer to go to school hungry today? Notice you're giving them the choice. And whatever the choice they make, they'll have to experience the consequences. It's important to let them do that every time. You should never make an empty threat you're not willing to follow through with. You should not pack their breakfast to go. If they go to school hungry, that's on them. It might be a good idea to do that one or two times, but sooner or later they'll realize that it's better that they're not hungry. They'll connect the dots between, I'm not at breakfast on time, 
I don't get to eat until lunch, and I don't want to be hungry again, so I'll eat my breakfast. Let's look over another example. Clear instruction. It's time to brush your teeth and get ready for bed. Please go to the bathroom. Natural consequences. If you don't brush your teeth before bed, you'll go to bed with a bad taste in your mouth. It won't feel nice. You might not be able to sleep as well. If you don't brush your teeth before bed regularly, you'll develop cavities. That means you'll have to go to the dentist to fix them when your teeth start to hurt. That might be stressful and painful. Unfortunately, because that's a consequence of the decision you made, you'll have to live with the consequence. You'll have to pay for the fillings out of your pocket money. It typically costs about $100 per cavity. Would you prefer to brush your teeth or go to the dentist and pay for it yourself? This is all you need to do. Explain the consequences, give them a choice, and make them live with it. You can do this in a firm but calm way. Here's one final example where you can combine the instructions and consequences. Clear instruction. We're going to see the new Spider-Man in 15 minutes. If you want to have enough time to buy the popcorn and not miss the movie, please be ready to leave on time. If you're more than 15 minutes late, we will have to go at another time. But it won't be this week. This one is really simple. They can choose to not get the popcorn or be late to the movie. It's not the end of the world if that happens, so don't stress about it. They can choose to be more than 15 minutes late and not see the movie. It will only need to happen once. Next time, they'll be ready on time. Step number three. Take immediate action. The last step is simple. No nagging, no repeating yourself, no pleading, just act. If they don't put the TV volume down, turn off the TV. If they don't eat their breakfast, pack it for your own lunch. Get ready and drive them to school. If they don't get ready for the cinema on time, don't buy them popcorn. Be late to the movie or skip the movie for a week. Now, be warned. The first few times this happens, your kids are very likely to throw a tantrum or have a meltdown. They might say it's not fair or try to negotiate with you. Here, it's important to do three things. Stay calm. We have a whole set of instant relaxation triggers ready for you in the challenge, but for now, simply say to yourself, this will pass and power through it. Acknowledge that this will only happen one, two times per situation. Once your kids understand natural consequences and that you're serious about them, they'll start following your instructions. Whatever you do, don't yell. You're not trying to get them to follow instructions the first time around. You're not trying to avoid a tantrum or a meltdown. Your goal is to stay calm, be firm, set boundaries and not yell. Once you go through this process a few times, your child's brain will slowly begin the rewiring process. And within one to two weeks, you'll notice that in at least 80% of the cases, they'll follow your instructions the first time you give them. That's it for today. Day 5. Two good choices. The easiest way to prevent your kids from saying no and avoid power struggles is to simply stop asking questions that can be answered with yes or no. The same goes for requests and instructions. You'll want to avoid saying things like, Do you want to eat dinner? Can you please put the bear back on the shelf in a toy store? Please help me put the dishes out of a dishwasher. Do your homework. Are you coming or not? Can you please pay attention to me while I'm speaking to you? Can you stop using your phone during lunch, please? A much more effective strategy is called two good choices. Every time you want your kids to do something, let them make a choice between two options that are acceptable to you. 
you can combine this strategy with the three-step education that you learned about yesterday. Remember, your instructions should be simple and clear. What you shouldn't do is explain the why, negotiate, repeat yourself, or nag. Once you have your child's attention, use quiet speech or shoulder tap, give them the two good choices. Here are some examples. Do you want chicken or pasta for dinner? Do you want to eat lunch at 1pm or 2pm? Do you want to turn off the TV or do you want me to do it for you? Do you want to put the bear back on the shelf now or take it for a walk around the store and then put it back? Would you rather vacuum the living room or take out the trash? Would you like to do your homework before or after your afternoon nap? Do you want to go to the park or to the movies tonight? Do you want to wear the blue or the red dress today? Do you want to make yourself breakfast or that I make it for you? Do you want to get dressed by yourself or do you want me to help you? Do you want to go to the dentist tomorrow or on Wednesday? With older kids, you can start introducing new, more complex options. Do you want to tidy up your room by yourself or hire a cleaning lady? The cleaning lady will cost $50, which will be deducted from your pocket money. This phone is too expensive, unfortunately. Do you want to get it as your birthday gift or contribute 50% of the cost from your savings? We can also make a lemonade stand to help you earn it if you want to. Do you want to go with us to your grandma this weekend or clean up the house? If you choose to clean up the house, we'll create a list of things that need to be done and you'll be responsible for doing them by 6pm on Sunday. If we go to grandma, I'll do the chores myself on Sunday. Here's what will happen once you start using two good choices. Your kids will learn to think, not fight. They'll feel and become more independent. They'll choose the option they prefer autonomously. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter to you if they take out the trash or vacuum the living room. It doesn't matter to you if they go to the dentist one day earlier or later. It doesn't even matter to you if they prefer to spend their pocket money on a cleaning lady rather than clothes or toys. They might even learn a valuable budgeting lesson, but it matters to them. It makes all the difference. Rather than being told to do something where they have no say in the matter, and a likely response is a no that leads to a tantrum, they're now part of the decision-making process. They feel important, listened to, and involved. This means they'll be much more likely to cooperate. Try out the two good choices strategy at least five times over the next few days. Day 6. Better than Spider-Man. Many of my favourite work memories come from summer camps that I led for over 20 years, from sunny beach camps to camping trips in the woods. We had a lot of fun with the kids doing things they never thought they would do and created pleasant childhood memories. During those camps, when I asked the kids what they wanted to do, they would come up with many crazy requests. One hot summer day, a group of adolescent boys told me they wanted to make an explosion and blow up some rocks. I said to them, Hmm, I'm not sure about blowing up rocks as we don't want to damage the environment, but I'm sure we can come up with a way to make an explosion. How could we make something explode? One of the kids mentioned that they saw a YouTube video of a big Mentos and Coca-Cola explosion. I was sure we could perform the experiment in a safe way, so I went to the store and bought a few different sized bottles of Coca-Cola and a couple of bags of Mentos candy. Then we created a safety protocol to make sure nobody got hurt during our experiment. We blocked off the no walking zone, played a loud siren sound to make sure everybody knew that the experiment was starting. Decided who was responsible for preparing what, who would clean up the mess and how, and got to work. We then started with the smallest bottle 
and progressively moved on to bigger ones. We guessed how high up into the air each explosion would go. We decided how we would measure it. And with each explosion, there was a bigger and bigger anticipation. Because we created a safety protocol, everything went smoothly. We all had an unforgettable day. To be honest, when the two-litre bottle exploded and sent the Coca-Cola soaring high into the sky, it was an exhilarating experience for everyone, including the adults. To this day, when I see these now-grown-up kids on the street, we always remember the beautiful moments we had together. As a parenting coach, I use the yes-but-how strategy consistently to build trust with the kids that I work with. You see, most of my work with them doesn't happen at the dining table. I know I need to occupy their bodies, hands and minds with something that they enjoy doing, something that relaxes them. So we often build remote-control airplanes, full-size river boats and rockets they can launch up into the sky. As we're doing this, I get to know them and build trust with them, so I can quickly go from being a stranger to someone they listen to and cooperate with. Over the past few days, we went over many quick fixes that will help you get your kids to listen in the moment and stop yelling. But if you want them to cooperate with you in the long run, you need to become an authority in your family. When I say an authority, I mean a role model that they can look up to, just like they might look up to Thor, Spider-Man or another favourite superhero of theirs. You can do that by paying genuine interest in their lives, doing the things they love, and helping them become the person they, not you, want to become. All of these give you authority points. All of these loosen their defences. All of these remove the need to throw tantrums because things aren't going their way or because they don't get the attention or feel misunderstood. Saying no to them every day, multiple times per day, unfortunately, takes those points away. If they go to school and come home and all they get from you is, do your homework, eat your dinner and take out the trash, their emotional tank will slowly become more and more empty. They don't want to have a life like that. They want to have fun. If their emotional tank stays empty, they'll misbehave, withdraw from you, get angry at you, and start hanging out with people that get them and care about them, either in the real world or through video games where they connect with other kids. If you don't want that to happen, if you want to build a strong bond with your kids and make cooperation so much easier, then I highly recommend you to start using the yes but how strategy on a daily basis. It's very simple. Every time your kids ask for something instead of saying no, say yes but how, think or talk about the outcome they want to achieve. In our previous example, this was a big loud explosion. Now ask them how else they can achieve that outcome in a safe way. Let them come up with ideas first, and then perhaps if they're stuck, you can add some additional ideas. If you don't have any ideas, simply say, give me 30 minutes and I'll get back to you. In the meantime, let's both think about how we could make this happen. As a modern parent, you have a big advantage over me. You can simply ask Google and YouTube for recommendations on DIY projects you can do at home. Everything from marble races and domino experiments to safe chemistry tests you can do with tools available from your home or the nearest DIY store. If you've never done any of this before, it might take some time to get good at it. It's a skill that you have to develop. But luckily, your partners will be the most creative people in the world. Your kids. Listen to their ideas. Find ways to make them happen with them together. Let them take the initiative and do the thinking, planning and problem solving. 
Some of the experiments will fail and teach your kids a valuable lesson. All of them will make them more patient, and all of them will bring you closer together, making it easier to function as a happy family. So go on, for one week, replace no with yes, but how. Day 7. Sweeten the deal. You and your kids are more alike than you think. You tend to be much more irritable when you're tired, hungry, or stressed out. And so are they. So, if they don't feel good, the last thing they'll want to do is help you around the house or do their schoolwork. It will feel like pulling teeth, and there's no wonder they'll resist it in any way you can. That's why you should pay attention to a few things before you ask your kids to do something. Are they hungry? If yes, make sure you have a snack ready for them. Are they tired or sleepy? If yes, make sure they take a nap or get some rest or alone time. Are they in a bad mood? If yes, listen to them and let them express their emotions, hug them, let them cry or do something you enjoy with them until they feel better. This way, you can avoid a lot of unnecessary yelling battles. There's a time and space to teach your kids how to do difficult things, even when they're tired or stressed out. But if your family relationships aren't in a great place, this is not the time and place to do so. That's why you should take care of their physical and emotional needs first, before attacking them with all the things you want them to do. Then after that's done, and you have a much better starting point. Sweeten the deal. To do that, you'll lead with something they enjoy. And follow up with something they enjoy a little bit less. For example, when you come back home from the grocery store, first give your kids one piece of their favourite candy. Now they're in a good mood and excited. Then kindly ask them if they want to help you put the groceries into the fridge or take out the dishes from the dishwasher. Two good choices. Your goal is to give instructions to your kids when they're in a happy, collaborative state, not the fight-or-flight state. Here are a few things you can do to sweeten the deal. Sweet treats. Nothing beats the smell of freshly baked cookies or their favourite treats, music, singing and dancing. Let your kids play their favourite music, maybe even a little bit louder than usual. Even if you dislike it, you can sing and dance with them. Favourite shows. Let them watch their preferred TV show or YouTube channel. Gamify. Turn household chores into a game. I was able to put 15 glasses into the dishwasher last time around. Maybe you can find a way to put 20. Competition. Are you up for a friendly competition? I wonder which of us can vacuum faster. You can take the dining room, I'll take the living room. The winner gets a surprise reward. Time trial. I've just set an alarm on my phone, but I won't tell you when it goes off. Do you want to see if you can clean up all your toys before it rings? Race. Uh-oh, we need to take out the trash. How about we each grab two bags and see who can get there faster? Express interest. Ask them to talk to you about something that they can't stop talking about. Maybe it's their favourite YouTuber, football team or video game. Don't judge them. Simply let them talk and ask them questions about it, really trying to learn from them. A hard challenge. I know I've said that you're too young to help me fix my car, but I was thinking today we can give it a shot. Of course, safety should be your top priority, but kids can often handle more than you might expect at a much earlier age than you'd think. Different sweets work better on different kids. Try each of the above at least once and see which ones they respond best to. Then use more of those in the future. It will be more fun for you and for them to get work done around the house with this approach. Time will fly and it won't feel like a tedious chore. 
And over time, as kids associate chores with good positive feelings, they'll become more inclined to do them independently, or even start challenging you to races. You might even be able to do more than you thought you would be able to do this way. If your kid is excitedly talking to you about the superhero movie they just saw, they can put the dishes out of the dishwasher, help you do the laundry, and maybe even iron with you for a while. The same goes for listening to music and watching TV shows. It'll be in their interest to keep doing something they enjoy, so they're more likely to keep helping you out along the way. Now, as you start sweetening the deal, there's one final twist. 50% of the time, there should be no follow-up initiated from your side. Sometimes just invite your kids to dance with you, or tell you about your day, or watch their favorite TV show with you, nothing else. Other times use this opportunity to do some chores together with them. This way they won't start to think, oh no, this is a trap. They'll see that sometimes positive things are just positive things, and sometimes they're an opportunity to do something that would otherwise feel boring. So go on, try this out with your kids today. Day 8. The 40-Ute-Hour Rule for the kids that want something now, or they throw a fit when they don't get what they want, there's a great strategy that you can use to teach them how to become more patient. You can help them learn the difference between needs and wants, and it will save you from buying many toys and gadgets that your kids want in the moment, but forget about the next day. The strategy is called the 40-Ute-Hour Rule, and here's how it works. When you're at a store, and your kid wants to get a toy that you don't think they'll use, say something like this. I understand you want this right now, but I want to make sure you really, really want it and value it if I buy it for you. So I propose a deal. Let's wait for 40 Ute hours. The toy will still be there by then. In 40 Ute hours, it's your job to remind me that you still want it. If that's the case, we'll go and get it. I won't remind you, though, this is your responsibility. If you realize that you don't want it anymore, that's okay as well. This works well for everything from clothes to gadgets to toys. It's important that you don't remind them in 40-ute hours, though. Don't ask them if they still want the toy. Don't take them to the store. If it's important enough for them, they'll be the ones to remind you and arrange everything. And if you do end up buying it, because they had to put more effort into getting it, they'll value it much more than if they just got it instantly. Now, this strategy works really well for smaller purchases within your budget. For bigger purchases that might be out of your budget, you can combine the 40-Ute-Hour rule with the yes-but-how approach. In that case, the conversation would go like this. I understand that you really want this phone at the moment. However, I want to ensure that you truly value it if I decide to buy it for you. So here's a deal. Let's wait for 48 hours. The phone will still be available by then. After 48 hours, it's your responsibility to remind me if you still want it. I won't remind you about it. This is your decision to make. If you discover that you no longer want it, that's perfectly fine too. There's one more thing, though. Unfortunately, this phone is out of my budget, but I can contribute 50% of the price if you wish to buy it for yourself. Within the next 48 hours, you can make a plan for obtaining the remaining 50%. You have several options. You can take it out of your savings account, deduct it from your pocket money in smaller installments over the next few months, or come up with a plan to earn the required funds. In any case, if we do decide to purchase this together, we will create a contract outlining the precise payment terms and conditions, as well as what happens if they are not met. 
This approach will encourage them to think more carefully before they make an impulse purchase. Teach them how to handle their money responsibly and think long and hard about how they spend it. It might even help them develop an entrepreneurial mindset that will serve them further in life. And you can use this opportunity to teach them about contracts and create natural consequences if the terms and conditions aren't met. If you do this, I encourage you to ask your kids, what do you think would be a fair penalty if each of us fails to follow through with this contract? They might surprise you with what they come up with. Here's a word of warning when you use this strategy, though. Never go back on your word. If you make a deal to come back in two days, make sure you have the time to do so. If you said you would pay for something, do it. If you want your kids to trust you, you have to show them integrity. If they live up to their end of the deal, you have to as well. Otherwise, this will never work again. The same actually applies to many other things in parenting. If you said you'd pay attention to your kids in five minutes because you're on a phone call, it's your job to actually set a timer for five minutes and wrap up the call. Not six, not ten, not thirty minutes. And when you explain natural consequences using three-step education, you have to execute them. This is the best approach to avoid confusing your kids and demonstrate that you follow through on your promises, which can earn you a lot of authority points. Okay, that's it for today. Next time you're in a store and your kids desperately want something, try the 48-hour rule. Day 9. Smart negotiation. Your kids will often try to negotiate something they want. Just 10 more minutes. I'll do my homework tomorrow instead of today, I promise. I will do anything if you get me this toy. And in general, there's nothing wrong with that. They are expressing that something is important and they're offering to do something in return. And negotiation is an important skill in life that will help them secure a better salary, work benefits, etc. So it's a skill worth teaching them. But with most parents I worked with, I noticed they could be negotiating with their kids in much more effective ways. If you teach your kids how to become smart negotiators, you'll often be able to avoid tantrums and meltdowns because your default answer is no, and get kids to do things they might not want to do. So instead of telling your kids, eat your broccoli, which they'll resist, Oregon even, you need to eat your broccoli before you get your dessert, which you also know doesn't work very well. You can find a better way to negotiate. Now, when it comes to smart negotiation, there are a few things you should know. Both sides should offer something. Can I play my video game for ten more minutes, please? Or, I'll do my homework tomorrow instead of today is not smart negotiation. They aren't offering anything in return. Not everything is negotiable. Brushing their teeth before bed and doing their homework are non-negotiables and should be followed up with three-step education, natural consequences. But some things are negotiable. Buying them an expensive toy or a video game they want, screen time, going to the amusement park. These are all things your child could earn. One great way to know when you should negotiate and when you shouldn't is to make a list of things you think are negotiable and things that aren't. No gimmies. One of the biggest parenting mistakes you can make is inconsistency. If they can play video games for 30 minutes when you have a bad day and for three hours when you have a good day, your kids will think to themselves, this isn't fair. Yesterday it was three hours, today it's 30 minutes. And they'll do anything to get you to give in, testing your patience along the way. 
That's why kids need clear structure, rules and boundaries, and whenever possible, no gimmies. Their part of the deal should happen before they get what they want. I promise I'll take out the trash for the whole week could lead to more conflicts if your kids tend to make empty promises. They should offer something now, not the next day or the next week. If they want to earn 30 more minutes of screen time, that's fine. But they should do something before that happens. Replace promises with contracts. In some cases, like in a toy store, this will not be possible. In those cases, you should make an agreement with predefined natural consequences. Make them write down their part of the deal on a piece of paper and sign it. I, name, agree to their part of the deal, in order to get what they want. If I will not do that before date, I agree to natural consequences. To make this easier, you can even ask them what fair natural consequences could be for them. One trick you can use is to create a contract template, print it out on a small piece of paper and carry one or two contracts around in your pocket, so you can pull them out and simply fill them out when you're on the go. Let them make an offer. Don't give in to the temptation to make the decision for them, saying things like, yes, you can play video games for 30 more minutes if you do the laundry, takes away their independence and creativity, and they're much more likely to resist something that was your idea not theirs. Instead, make sure they're constantly thinking about what they can do to earn what they want. Use these three smart negotiation phrases. Now, when it's time to negotiate, there are three phrases you can use to train your kids to be creative thinkers and smart negotiators. You might be able to convince me what will you offer in return. When your child asks or begs for something negotiable, this should be your first line of defense. This sets the expectation that there are no gimmies and gets them to start thinking about how they can earn what they want. What do you think is fair? This phrase is great for things your kids don't want to do, like eating broccoli. Ask them, how much broccoli do you think it's fair that you eat before you get your dessert? They might say something like 10 bites, which will likely be more than you could force them to eat. Convince me. This phrase is short and simple, and it triggers their thinking mode. You don't have to accept the first thing they say. Let them come up with persuasive arguments why you should get them what they want, until they convince you. If they struggle with this step, say, Here, I'll help you by giving you some things that are important to me. And give them a list of things that are important to you, but your kids don't want to do. This can be anything from household chores to schoolwork to participating in activities and projects that are important to you. You can also write this list down in advance, put at least 10-20 items on it, and hand it to them to save it. This way, they can choose what they want to do, rather than be forced to do something. Enough talk, let's take action. Make a list of negotiable and non-negotiable activities. Draft up a negotiation contract and print it out. And come up with a list of things important to you that they can use as leverage in the negotiation process. Then... Use the three smart negotiation phrases next time the opportunity arises. And make sure you try all three approaches to see what works best with your kids. Day 10. Emergency Scale There are really just four types of stressful situations you'll encounter as a parent. By using the appropriate response for each of the four situations, you'll be able to reduce yelling in your family by 80% or more. This is where the emergency scale comes into play. Number 1. Emergencies. 
These are life or death situations where your kids are in danger and could get seriously hurt. In those situations where seconds matter, yelling to get their attention is a must. These are situations like crossing the road without looking, getting dangerously close to the edge of a cliff, or trying to eat a toy they could choke on. In these situations, you should yell, Eric, stop! That's it, plain and simple. You should always use the word stop, because they'll instantly stop in their tracks. But you should only use this phrase when there's true danger around them to make sure you get their attention when you need it the most. Resist using it in other situations where your child isn't in danger, like fighting with their siblings, painting the wall, or making a mess around the house. Number two, non-negotiables. Non-negotiables are things that are simply not okay for your child to do. Things like fighting with their siblings, not going to school, not doing their homework, not brushing their teeth, biting, hitting, anger outbursts, or destroying things around the house. These are things that can have a drastic negative impact on your child's life. In these situations, use the three-step education together with natural consequences. You can also explain to your child in a calm manner that this is a non-negotiable for you, it is not acceptable behavior, and there will be no negotiation around it. But don't forget to use the shoulder tap and quiet speech here. You have to be firm and consistent, but you can do that in a calm, peaceful way. Think about how Professor Dumbledore would approach these situations, and you'll have a fairly good idea how to handle them. Number three, negotiables. Next, we have activities that are negotiable. These might be things like buying toys, screen time, eating vegetables that they don't like. They will mostly not have a large negative impact on their life, but will make your home much more peaceful if they're handled properly. These are things that are opportunities for teaching your kids lessons about patience, grit, perseverance, money management, and doing things they might not enjoy doing, but are good for them. In these cases, Use smart negotiation. Over time, your kids will realize how everything works around your home. They'll see that there are consistent rules and trade-offs they can make. And there will be less and less need for negotiation. Number four, kids being kids. Finally, there are things that kids do just because they're kids, and you should let them do them in the right way. These opportunities allow your kids to learn about responsibility, acquire new skills, and nurture their childlike curiosity and playfulness instead of stifling it. These are things like climbing on trees, running around the house or a playground, playing with toys, or doing things that are messy but don't really impact their life in a negative way. If your kid comes home from the playground completely dirty but with a smile on their face, let them. You likely did too as a kid. If they make a mess in the garden, let them. What's more important to you, your garden or your child? If they run around the house because they love running, let them. They'll develop their agility skills. Instead of forbidding them to do these things, find ways to guide them in them. If they come home dirty, teach them how to clean themselves and their clothes properly. Have them help out with the laundry. Then they can decide for themselves whether they want to be dirty and take a long shower and if they want to scrub down their dirty clothes, or if they want to avoid that and pay a bit more attention the next time. Let them make the choice and commit to it. If they make a mess around the house or in the garden, let them, but then also make sure they clean up after themselves or fix what they've broken. If they destroyed a plant, help them replant it, or use this as an opportunity to go to a garden store and teach them how to plant new plants. 
but do it with a smile on your face, not a frown. This is where you should set some boundaries and implement natural consequences whenever necessary, but if possible, try to avoid it. Acknowledge they've made a mess and explain that it's okay if they do so, but they must also take responsibility for cleaning it up. What you should avoid at all costs is doing things instead of them. Doing their laundry, washing them, cleaning up their mess. Even if they break a glass, it's not the end of the world. You can teach them how to clean it up in a safe way by leading by example and letting them participate. And show them how to bandage themselves up if they do get hurt in the process. Don't rob them of these important life experiences by trying to overprotect them. If you do that, they'll just break their leg by slipping in a bathtub because they haven't developed the right agility skills by climbing on trees in a safe way. Finally, if you notice your kids just love doing something, like running or climbing, use the yes but how strategy and help them channel their enthusiasm into an activity where they can learn how to do that in a safe way. Ask them if they'd like to enroll in a rock climbing class, gymnastics class or an art class. Chances are they'll be over the moon about it if that's already something they're trying to do on their own. If you can't afford to pay for a class, simply do the activity with them and learn it together. There are plenty of instructional videos on YouTube that can help you acquire countless life skills. You can use these activities to fill up their emotional tank, spend quality time with them, create childhood memories, and deepen their bond with them. But whatever you do, don't forget about everything you've learned in this challenge so far. Channel your inner Albus Dumbledore and be the guiding parent they need you and want you to be. To get started with using the emergency scale, here's what you can do. Take five minutes to create your emergency scale on a piece of paper or in a document. Sort out which activities your kids do that tend to upset you and put them into different categories based on how they affect you. Next, reflect on which of these activities have triggered an inappropriate reaction from you in the past. Create a plan for how you'll handle these situations differently in the future. Finally, when you find yourself getting upset by something your kids are doing, take a moment to go through a mental checklist. Ask yourself, where does this situation fall on the emergency scale? If it's an emergency, yell stop. If it's a non-negotiable, use three-step education. If it's a negotiable matter, opt for smart negotiation. And if it's just typical child behaviour, employ yes but how. Along with natural consequences and gentle guidance, that's it for today. Day 11. Empathetic Echo When your kids are throwing a fit, meltdown or a tantrum, it's because they need something from you. What they don't need is yelling, lectures or natural consequences. These can be very counterproductive and will only make things worse. When your kids are throwing a tantrum, don't try to reason with them, complain about it or threaten them if they don't stop. Typically they are hungry, thirsty, tired or stressed out, need your attention, help or emotional support. Don't know how to handle big emotions. To help them calm down, try using the empathy first approach. Step number one, ask them what's going on. This can be as simple as saying name. What's going on? Are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? Don't jump to conclusions. Your job is to seal your lips and listen. If they refuse to talk to you, you say, it's okay if you don't want to talk to me right now, I'll be nearby, and when you're ready, you can talk to me, okay? If they're just hungry or tired, working together with them to get them some rest or something to eat will do the trick. As a side note, 
you can avoid many tantrums and meltdowns by planning ahead and making sure they always have the necessary rest, food and drinks. If you want to take them grocery shopping after work, but they seem tired and irritable, offer to sit on the couch with them and they can relax or take a nap for 30 minutes. If possible, run your errands after they feel better. You can also give them something to eat before you go out of the house and carry a snack and water bottle or juice in your bag just in case they need it. If they need help or emotional support, then continue to the next steps. Step number two, acknowledge, empathize and listen. Once they're ready to talk, acknowledge and empathize with them. You can also give them a hug if they let you. Just being there for them and embracing them, even without talking, will go a long way in helping them calm down. It's sending them a message that it's okay to feel the emotions they're feeling and that you're there for them no matter what. Once they start feeling calmer, help them work through their emotions like this. It's okay that you feel sad. I understand you. Now tell me, what made you feel sad? Again, resist the urge to help them right away with solutions. Just be there for them and listen. Your kids need you to be there and to see that you're paying attention to them and listening to them. You'll build a lot of authority by trying to understand them. You can ask them about the situation that triggered the emotions. I understand Ronnie hit you. What happened? Where did he hit you? Are you hurt? Do you need a bandage? Ask these questions one by one. Ask and listen. That's all you need to do. After a few minutes, you'll see that they'll put their defenses down and slowly become more relaxed. Even if they're still crying, that's okay. Just keep being there for them. Step number three. Get their wheels turning. Once they've shared how they felt, you can use this as an opportunity to teach them how to handle things. Life throws at them a little better and reduce tantrums and meltdowns in the future. You'll do that by engaging their brain, empathy and emotional intelligence. You can try a variety of different approaches here. Hey, I know you feel sad right now. What do you think you can do to start feeling better? Is there something you want to do? This helps them start thinking about how they can calm down independently. You know, when I'm sad, it helps me to do some yoga, play some baseball, go for a run, do some jumping jacks, or just lay on the floor and relax with some calming music on, paint, sing and dance. Would you like to do that with me? Physical exercise and calming activities can work great. Activities your kids are likely to enjoy will work better. Why do you think Ronnie hit you? What do you think he was feeling? What do you think made him feel that way? This builds their empathy muscles. Another great thing you can do on a regular basis to teach your kids how to spot, acknowledge and handle their emotions and become more empathetic is called echoing empathy. When you're walking around the street or in a supermarket and you see someone, could be a child or an adult, who isn't feeling great, get your child's brain involved. When you see a father shouting at his kids, you can ask your child questions like, Do you see that man in a red shirt? What do you think is going on? What emotion is he feeling? Why do you think he's feeling it? What do you think happened? What could he do to feel better? Do you think he could react in a different way than yelling? What could he do instead? What would you do if you were him? Or when you see a boy throwing a tantrum in a toy store, you can ask questions like, Do you see the boy in the blue t-shirt? What do you think he is feeling? Why do you think he is feeling that way? What do you think happened? What could he do to feel better? Do you think he could react in a different way than what he's doing right now? What could he do instead? What would you do if you were him? 
You can also have your child practice empathy when you notice there's a kid who seems lonely and sad in a playground or a park. Do you see that girl in a pink dress? What do you think she is feeling? Why do you think he is feeling that way? What do you think happened? What could she do to feel better? What would you do if you were her? Do you want to go talk to her or keep her company? This takes things one step further, because instead of just thinking about their emotions, they're learning how to be there for someone. The more you practice this, and the more your kids put themselves into other people's shoes, the kinder they'll behave. They will also begin to understand how to respond when they encounter similar situations or experience similar feelings themselves. The more they develop their emotional intelligence, the less likely they'll be to have a meltdown and the faster they'll calm down. By practicing echoing empathy, you can gain insight into your kids' thoughts about effective ways to calm down. This can be valuable because you can suggest some of these strategies to them the next time they're upset. Okay, that's it for today. Let's get some practice in. Next time your child experiences a tantrum or a meltdown, use the empathy-first approach. Ask them what's going on. Check if they're hungry, thirsty or tired first. Acknowledge, empathize and listen. Get their wheels turning and for bonus points, try to practice echoing empathy at least three times and see what happens. Day 12. Partner Signals. If you have a partner, you can help each other stay calm in the heat of the battle and prevent stressful situations from escalating into yelling battles. You can do that with partner signals. Here's how you can use them. Step number one, define roles and responsibilities. Sit down with your partner and go over situations that made you lose it over the past month. You can refer to your no yelling tracker where you documented all the situations that made you yell. As you go through them, talk about who handles which situations better. Your goal is to play to your strengths when you're both present. Then define roles and responsibilities. Who will handle which situation in the future? If one of you doesn't know how to handle a specific situation well, this is a great opportunity to discuss what you could do better or differently next time. You can work through the no yelling tools from this challenge to make things easier. Step number two, establish the takeover moment. The takeover moment is the moment when you feel like you're about to lose it. At that time, if your partner is around, they should take over the situation and use the appropriate no yelling tools. Talk with your partner about what that moment looks like for you. Tell each other what you might do or how you act when you start losing control. If you know you begin to clench your jaw, share that with your partner so they know what to pay attention to. Then share what you notice about each other. If you notice a trend of what your partner does when you're about to blow, share that with them so they can become more mindful of it. If you don't know how you act and what are your warning signs, just be mindful of this next time you feel like your kids are testing your patience. You can talk about it with your partner after it happens. Next, decide that the next time one of you begins to lose it, you will use partner signals to let one another know you need help and that you'll be ready to take over when you receive the signal. Step number three, create your partner signals. It's time to choose your partner signals. These can be words or phrases you use, gentle hand gestures, looking the partner in the eyes. The only rule here is that these are calm and not aggressive. You can test different signals until you find the one that works. Typically, you'll use partner signals in two ways. When you feel like you're in trouble, 
Use the signal to let your partner know you need help and that you'd like them to take over. When you sense that your partner might be in trouble, use the signal and wait for their response. If they nod, that means they need help and they're ready for you to take over. If they shake their head, it means they have the situation under control. Once the signal is sent and received, you should step in to help each other out and use appropriate no-yelling tools. Then once you did it, talk about how it went and what you could do better next time. It might take some practice for you to choose the right signals for each other, ones that you both notice and remember to use. But as with everything when it comes to parenting, remember that your goal is practice and gradual improvement, not perfection. Take things one step at a time and try to do just a little better every day. Okay, it's time to get to work. Define your roles and responsibilities. Establish the takeover moment. Create your partner signals. Then try them out in action today. The more you practice, the better you'll get. Day 13. The do-over. There will inevitably come a time when something triggers you so much that you can't help but yell at your kids. Nobody is perfect after all. But after you yell for the first time, you'll be at a crossroads. You can let the situation escalate into a full-blown yelling battle. Or you can de-escalate the situation before more serious damage is done. To do the latter, you can use a strategy I call the do-over. Immediately after you yell, stop for a few seconds. Then say to your child, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I shouldn't have done that no matter what. It was my mistake. Let's do a do-over. Then pretend that you never yelled. Take a few second break, then act out the situation again in the way you think you should have acted. Use the no yelling tool appropriate for the situation, and remember to use quiet speech. Often these methods can help improve the situation and stop a bad mood from developing. Now I need to warn you, this might feel unnatural the first few times you do it, and it might be difficult to calm yourself down if anger overcame you. Your goal here isn't to suppress your feelings or sweep things under the rug. It's to give yourself a second chance to react better. This will help you see that not all is lost if you do yell once. And more importantly, it will teach you how to act in the space between a trigger and your reaction. Because you'll still be overwhelmed by emotions when you do the do-over, this will teach you how to manage them a little bit better every time it happens. It's okay to be angry. You can even say out loud that you're angry. But do it in a calm, quiet manner. But don't let your emotions throw you into the fight-or-flight mode where all you see is red. The more you practice this strategy, the better you'll react in the future. So make a commitment to trying it at least five times, and try to do just a little bit better than you did last time. Soon, it will become more natural to you. You'll be able to de-escalate situations quicker and prevent yourself from yelling in the first place. Another great benefit is that your kids will pick up on this. And over time, they will start using the do-over once they realize that their behavior wasn't perfect. So you're hitting two birds with one stone. You're not just teaching yourself how to regulate your emotions, but your kids as well. This will lead to far less tantrums and meltdowns within a few weeks, as long as you use this strategy consistently. So go on, try our the do-over next time you make a misstep in your parenting journey. Day 14. Magic Word. There will be times when you feel like you're starting to lose it, or you already lost it, and you aren't able to get yourself to do a do-over. In those cases, the best way to de-escalate the situation is to use a magic word. 
Magic word works in the same way as a timeout in sports. For a period of time until both sides have calmed down, you're calling a truce. This means that while you might disagree with your kids, you agree to disagree. But just because you disagree on something, that doesn't mean you have to fight about it. And it doesn't mean that the disagreement needs to influence the rest of your day and put everyone in a bad mood. You can wait until your emotions cool down and then resolve the situation and its root cause in a calm manner. The magic word can be truce or time out or something funny like banana. You can even ask your kids to come up with a name for it. It's important that when you use the magic word, you move on with your day as planned. Your kids should still get their bedtime story or be able to go to the cinema. There should be no immediate natural consequences. Those might come once the situation is resolved. One thing that works well when using the magic word is to move to a different location. Leave the crime scene. Go to the kitchen, grab a glass of water and pour a glass of water to your kids. Get something to eat. Then move on with your day. Whenever you use the magic word, make sure you close the loop you opened by leaving a disagreement unfinished. It's best to wait until the next day and to talk about what happened when everyone is in a good mood. You can make a reminder for yourself to make sure you don't forget. It's also best to do this while your kids are moving or have their hands occupied. When working on a puzzle, going for a walk or taking the dishes out of the dishwasher, you can start the conversation by saying something like, Hey, I know we had a disagreement yesterday and that I didn't act the way I wanted to. I'm sorry for that. But it's not good to leave situations like this unresolved. I'd like to talk about it and find a good solution together. If your kids resist or react to you emotionally, then let it go and try again the next day. The key is to not push it, but to be consistent. Sooner or later, they'll be willing to cooperate when they see you mean them no harm. Because you've taken the time to calm down, the conversation will go way smoother than it would in the heat of the moment. Perhaps you already came up with a new perspective or a new solution since your battle. But most importantly, you didn't let the situation get out of hand in the first place because you used the magic word and you are teaching your kids how to resolve disagreements in a calm manner. If you have multiple kids, you can also teach them this technique to reduce sibling battles. Once they learn how to agree to disagree and move on with their days, there will be far less sibling battles in your home. Okay, now let's take action. The first thing you should do is decide on a magic word. You can ask your kids for help with this one. Then, brief your kids on what the magic word is and how you want to use it. They can use it too, of course. Say something like, Hey, so I know we've been arguing a lot lately and I want to try something new. I'd like us to come up with a magic word that we can use as a truce when we disagree on something so we don't fight about it. What do you think a good word would be? It can be something funny, anything you choose. Then, the next time you can't take it anymore, use the magic word. Just like with the do-over, this can take some practice, but it should immediately feel more natural. Make sure you use the magic word sparingly. If you overuse it, that is use it every day, it will lose its magic and effectiveness. You should also use other no-yelling tools first whenever possible. Depending on how often you find yourself yelling, I would use the magic word at a maximum of one to two times per week, and ideally only one to two times per month or less. Now go on, create your magic word and try it out in practice. Day 15. 
Reconnection Protocol. If you've been using the no-yelling tools I shared with you, you have already drastically reduced the amount of yelling in your family. Great job! Give yourself a pat on the back. You're living up to the commitment you made to yourself and your family. You've already come a long way, and things will only get better from here on. And even if you did yell, you now have tools in your toolbox that will help you de-escalate the situations quickly. But what about when everything fails and nothing goes according to plan, and you find yourself in a yelling battle? Not all is lost. You actually have a great opportunity to demonstrate how a mature person apologizes and reconnects after everything goes wrong. Every crisis you face is an opportunity to bring your family closer together instead of further apart. To do that, you can use the reconnection protocol. Instead of entering a shame spiral where you feel ashamed, tell yourself that you're a bad parent or feel guilty about what you did. You can make sure that the situation you just faced doesn't repeat itself. You can turn every mistake you make into a learning opportunity about your kids or yourself. Here's how the reconnection protocol works. Step number one, don't stop communicating with your child. Becoming a cold mom or dad is one of the most harmful things you can do to your kids. If you refuse to speak to your kids, they get a feeling like they're not loved, that you're pushing them away and that they're not part of the family. So even when you do lose it, keep communicating with your kids. That's always the first step. Step number two, consult with your child. Once everyone has calmed down, approach your child and say to them something like, Hey, I don't know what happened today. We really couldn't come to an agreement, and I don't know why, and we made our life hard. Approach them in a warm way, as an equal. Then, you should first listen. To learn about their perspective of the situation, you can use guiding questions like, What happened? What didn't you like? Why do you think we didn't get along? What do you think we can do to solve this? These will get your kids to think about what happened and come up with possible solutions. They're no longer mad at you for what happened. They're working together with you to solve it. And they feel like you're on the same team, which will make them much more likely to cooperate. Step number three, A. Express your emotions, version for kids over six years old. Next, admit to your child that you aren't happy with how you reacted. You can also explain to them the emotions you are feeling in the moment. It's important to just express your emotions and not blame your child for them. Instead of saying, I felt angry because you didn't do your homework and you never do your chores and just say, I was angry. Then you can engage your child and ask them how they think you could react differently next time. You can also give them an instruction for what to do next time you get into a conflict with them. Let them ask you, are we going to keep yelling and fighting or will we calm down? Step number three, B, we instead of you and me, version for kids younger than six years old. If you have a younger child, take them into your lap, hug and embrace them and speak in we. We are quite angry today, aren't we? We got really angry at each other. You can also use animals as an example. We were like two puppies today, weren't we? We were barking quite loudly. At this point, ask your child. What should we do now? How do puppies calm themselves down? Using an animal as an example makes it easier for your kids to put themselves into the shoes of someone else and calm down faster. You can even draw a picture where there are two dogs on one side, barking at each other and showing their teeth. On the other side, there are two kittens with interlocking tails. 
You can put this picture on your fridge or somewhere where it's visible in your home. Give your child a chance to go to the picture during the next yelling battle and point to it. This serves as an escape mechanism for them. They can let you know that they feel uncomfortable because of your telling and that they want you to find a way to calm down together. Okay, that's it for today. Next time you find yourself in a yelling battle, use the reconnection protocol to calm down and improve your relationships with your kids. Day 16. Tagging System. If you want your child to focus on you right away, you can employ the tagging system to get their immediate attention. It will come in handy when you're in a hurry and you want your kids to cooperate quickly and without a fuss, so they simply do what you need them to do. Now, before I share the system with you, there's one thing we should agree on. You should use this system sparingly, just like the stop order for when your kids are in danger. Use it only in the case of emergency, when you absolutely need to. The system has two parts. First part, tag. The tag immediately tells your child what you need from them in a single word. This will help you avoid all the confusion. Second part, instruction. Clear, simple instructions with what you need them to do. No over-explanations or repeating yourself. Just say what you want, without complicating, in as short a way as possible. I suggest you start with the following tags. Urgent. When something is really urgent and you need your kids to do something right away, not in five minutes. Important. When you really need your kids to listen and understand what you're about to say. Help. When you need their immediate help with something that you can't manage yourself due to physical limitations or other ongoing tasks. Now, as I said before, don't overuse these. I use a similar system with my co-workers when I send them emails and need something urgently. You can apply a similar approach in your text messages to your kids. I write urgent in the subject line of the email. These emails are then taken care of with the speed of light, but they only receive them perhaps once a month. Imagine if I sent them emails like this three times a day. If you label everything as urgent, they might not take it seriously when it truly is. So only use it when something really needs quick attention. As a rule of thumb, I would use each of these tags at most once a week or a handful of times per month when you really need them the most. Now, here are some examples of how you can use these tags. Example number one, urgent. Your grandma is in town and she just called you that she's coming to visit in five minutes. There's trash in the hallway that needs to be taken out. But since you're preparing a risotto for lunch, you can't handle this task by yourself. In this case, you can use your tag. Mia, urgent, please take out the trash from the hallway because grandma is coming to stop by in five minutes. If this situation was 20 minutes before grandma's arrival, you could also use the tag help instead. Example number two. Help you're at the bus stop and realize you forgot to buy the bus tickets. Fortunately, the bus driver kindly agreed to wait for a few minutes while you sort it out. Knowing it will be quicker without your kids with you, you ask your older child for help. Tim, help! Take your brother's hand and wait for me at this exact spot, please. I'll be back in five minutes. Example number three. Important. You just picked up the kids from their football practice and you're in a rush to get to the school office hours. On the way, you need to pick up your husband. Andy, important, call your dad and tell him we're going to pick him up in 10 minutes. OK, that's it. Go and try out the tagging system over the next week and let me know how it went. Day 17. 
Expiration date. One of the root causes of losing control is uncertainty. When you feel like things are getting out of hand, when you don't know how much longer you can keep it together, when you just don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's hard to stay calm, and it's easy to panic. One thing you can do to regain control of the situation whenever you feel like you're starting to lose it is to minimize the uncertainty. One simple way to do that is to create a mental expiration date for the situation you're in. Ask yourself, how long could this situation actually last? It might be five minutes until you can stop at the next gas station so your kids can go to the toilet. It might be 30 minutes until you pay for groceries and get back home. Or in rare cases, it might be a few hours until you come back home from a hiking trip. In any case, giving the stressful situation an expiration date gives you that tiny bit of control that you need to manage to stay calm and use the appropriate no-yelling tool. You can say to yourself something like, This too will pass. I just need to pay for the groceries and then we'll be alone in the car. It will get easier. There will be nobody around us. I can do this. Even if the situation could last longer, chances are that it won't. In that case, you can say to yourself something like, I understand that even if everything goes wrong, this situation will last two hours at most. If that happens, it won't be the end of the world. We'll be okay. We've been through worse. It won't last forever, and it doesn't have to ruin our day. Plus, there's a chance it won't last that long. Maybe there's something I can do to de-escalate it. It's okay. I'm calm. I'm in control. I can do this. Now, to make this strategy easier, go ahead and make an expiration date list. Simply go over as many stressful situations as you can from the last month that made you feel powerless, helpless or nervous, and write down how long each of those lasted. You can use your no-yelling tracker to help you remember some of the situations you might have forgotten. Now that you know what the expiration date of each situation is, you can take things a step further. You can go through those situations and write down an appropriate no-yelling tool you can use once they arise. This way, the next time they happen, you will already know the expiration date, and you will have a plan for what to do. This means you'll be able to react in a much calmer way, and over time, this will become automatic to you. You'll just say to yourself, OK, this will only last five minutes. It's just kids being kids. I can just be next to them and have a good laugh about it. Or, OK, this can only last 30 minutes if all goes wrong. Let me think of two good choices to defuse the situation. If that doesn't work, we can try a do-over or use the magic word. Once this process becomes automatic to you, you'll be surprised at how calm you'll be able to stay, even in the most powerful storm. So go on, make your expiration date list, and then try this strategy in practice. Day 18, buffer time. If you feel like you're always in a rush to go somewhere, if you're always late, and if you tend to yell and struggle in those situations because your kids just don't listen and cooperate, then buffer time will be a lifesaver. For example, let's say you typically wake up at 7am. While you're getting ready, you expect your kids to get ready as well. But when you open the doors to their room at 7.30, you notice they're busy playing with their toys, still sleeping in their bed, or scrolling on their phone. Of course, you're not happy. So what can you do in this case? There are a few possible solutions. Number one, get your kids ready first. First, 
Make sure your kids get ready before you start getting ready yourself. Typically, they won't need the whole 30 minutes if they actually get started. So, make sure they get started and you can assist them if they want to. Remember the two good choices. Do you want to get ready yourself or do you want me to help you? Will you wear the blue or orange t-shirt today? Do you want to brush your teeth or get dressed first? The key here is to get the ball rolling. Just get them started. Once they're no longer laying in bed, once they're in motion, they're much more likely to get ready earlier. And once they're ready, they can do whatever they want while they wait for you to get ready. This doesn't just apply to going to school. You can use the same strategy when you go to the movies, grocery store, or to visit their grandparents. If that doesn't work, then switch to the next strategy. Number two, buffer time. First, figure out how long you are typically late. Is it five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes? That's your buffer time. You can use the buffer time in the following ways. Add buffer time to every activity you have planned in your day that involves kids. If your buffer time is 30 minutes, then put their baseball practice in your calendar 30 minutes earlier. This might mean that you'll have to slightly clear up your schedule or cancel some of your commitments. That's okay. Most parents these days overcommit to doing too many things, and then they're always in a rush, always stressed out, always late and always yelling. If you do this, it's worse for both you and your kids. You're both more stressed out because of it. It's better to do one thing less in a day and have the day go smoothly and calmly than to be constantly nervous about being on time. If you know you have to be at the movies at 6pm and you know you have to leave the house at 5.30pm, then shift that time to 5.15pm. That should be the time you communicate with your kids. If you get there early, great. They'll have plenty of time to go to the bathroom, arcades or get some popcorn. If you're technically 15 minutes late, you'll still be there on time without the unnecessary stress. Get ready 10 minutes earlier. You can wake up 10 minutes earlier, get ready earlier, and create a buffer time for your kids to get ready without a fuss. Yes, you might sleep 10 minutes less, but you won't start your day completely stressed out, so you'll be much better off. Get your kids ready 10 minutes earlier. If your kids are always late to school, simply start waking them up 10 minutes earlier. At first, they won't like it, and you might feel sorry for them, but don't because you yelling at them and stressing them out earlier in the day has a far worse impact on their mood, behaviour and life. OK, now let's put this strategy into practice. Think about how much buffer time you need. Think about when you need it the most, which activities you're typically late to. Cancel some activities to create space for buffer time and say yes to 10% less activities in the future. And then test out the strategies I shared with you in today's email. Once you try them out, report back to me how it went. Day 19. Redirection. When everything feels like too much and you just need a way out, you can use redirection. This technique works especially well when your kids are particularly strong-willed or stubborn and they can't seem to be able to stop. To de-escalate the conflict, redirect their attention to something else, something that interests them or excites them. This will help you regain control of the situation and help them go from emotionally overwhelmed to thinking and calm. For younger kids, you can use the following ideas. If your child likes firefighters and you hear a siren, you can say, Can you hear that siren? Can you guess what it is? Is it the police, ambulance or a fire brigade? If they love nature and animals, you can say, Hey, I wonder what our dog is doing. Should we go check up on him? Or, you know what? Let's take a break. 
Let's go into the garden and see if we can find some new plants or animals. If they love art, music or dancing, ask them, hey, why don't we go and paint something? Or why don't you choose some music we can play and then we can sing and dance to it? Don't worry if the redirect feels rough at first. It doesn't matter. As long as your child is genuinely interested in something, even if you personally are not, they won't be able to resist talking or thinking about it. Plus, because you've shown an interest in their lives, this will bring you closer together. For older kids and teenagers, ask them about things they can't resist talking about. If they love Vikings, say something like, Looks like we won't be able to reach an agreement today. Tell me something about Vikings instead. If they hesitate, ask them a more specific question like, Who is your favorite Viking? Or, What do you find most interesting about the Vikings? If they love rock climbing, say something like, I remembered we never talked about your last climbing trip or practice. How did it go? And then follow up with questions like, What was your favorite route? How did it go? Can you show me? Or, Are there any climbing competitions you want us to watch in the near future? Who are you rooting for? If they love cosmetics or makeup, say something like, I know you like watching YouTube videos about makeup. What do you like so much about them? Who is your favorite YouTuber? Why? Or if you could make any sort of makeup on yourself, what would it look like? Do you want to go try it out? You can take things a step further and actually engage with them in the activity they love. Go climbing together. Watch a documentary about Vikings. Watch a few YouTube videos together and ask curious questions about them. Within seconds of using redirection, your child's shoulders will relax. They'll start lowering their defenses. They'll start to calm down. Within minutes, they'll forget that it happened and your day won't be ruined. Of course, you can still resolve the situation in the future to avoid any open loops, but you can do that once everyone is calm. Remember the magic word, the next day rule and reconnection protocol. Wait for another day and create a conversation you can learn from. Next time your child is throwing a fit, try out redirection. To make it even easier, you can take two minutes right now to list at least three things your child is enthusiastic about and craft some potential questions to ask, so you'll already be prepared when it happens. Day 20. Alter Ego I once worked with a mum whose son resisted everything she told him to do. She said that one of the things he hated the most was taking out the trash. He always responded with, Go do it yourself. I'm not your garbage man. But because I spent some time with her son and got to know him a bit better, I knew that he was obsessed with superhero movies and had multiple Halloween customs stored up in the attic. The next time that happened, I recommended that she respond with, Why don't you put on your Spider-Man costume? That way you'll be Spider-Man. She thought I was joking and that it wouldn't work, but she agreed to try it anyway. To her surprise, her son happily sprinted into the attic, put on his costume, and, dressed as Spider-Man, sprinted back and took out the trash. Was it silly? Yes. Did it work? Yes. What was fascinating was that this became a thing in their family. When it was time to do his chores, her son put on his Spider-Man costume, jumped around and had a whole lot of fun doing things that would otherwise bore and annoy him. He became much more cooperative because of one small change, and when he grows up, he'll always have fun childhood memories to remember. Perhaps he'll even use the same strategy with his kids one day instead of yelling at them. What we did in this situation is we created an alter ego. It wasn't him taking out the trash. It was Spider-Man. 
Many of the world's best athletes, executives and entrepreneurs use alter egos on a daily basis and their effect on human performance in challenging situations is undeniable. Now, an alter ego doesn't have to be Spider-Man. It could be Wonder Woman or Beyonce or anyone else your child admires. It doesn't need to require a costume. Although physical artifacts and costumes do make things more effective, fun and enjoyable for your kids. It also doesn't just work with getting your kids to do chores. It helps them stay more focused by studying, dealing with difficult life situations, and developing the self-confidence they might lack. You can also use alter egos in a quicker way. When your child is particularly stubborn or doesn't know what to do in a situation, simply ask them, Hey, what do you think Spider-Man would do? Or, if you ask Spider-Man for advice, what would he tell you? You'll be surprised to see how quickly the thinking and behavior of your kids changes when you use this strategy. There are also two great books by best-selling author Todd Herman that you can use to help your kids create and use their own alter egos. The alter ego effect. Great for older kids, especially if they love sports. They can read it by themselves, or you can read it and teach them the frameworks from it. My Super Me, a children's book for younger kids. So go on. Think about a superhero or a celebrity your child admires. If you don't know, ask them who their favorite superhero is. Next time they're being especially stubborn, ask them, what would the superhero do? Or suggest they put on their costume? Day 21. Quiet Sofa. You can decrease your everyday levels of stress and escape yelling battles by creating a quiet sofa. A quiet sofa is a designated safe space in your home where anyone in your family can find the peace and solitude they need to relax and unwind. In this area, no one is allowed to be disturbed. Not you, not the kids, not your partner. The only situation where it's okay to disturb someone in the quiet sofa is during an urgent emergency that cannot be delayed, such as a fire, a call from grandma regarding grandpa's health, or picking up your daughter from her art class. You can define what's an emergency in advance, together with your kids. Now, the quiet sofa doesn't actually need to be a sofa. Although, from my experience, sofas do work pretty well. It could be an armchair, a hammock, a dedicated room in the house, the balcony, the porch, the garden, or a small tent in the living room. The key here is that everyone respects each other. When you're on the quiet sofa, if your kids want something from you that's not an emergency, say, I need some alone time right now, I'll be with you in 20 minutes, or however much time you might need to relax. Then set an alarm to make sure you don't break that commitment. Kids hate it when you do. The same goes for your kids. When they're on their quiet sofa, leave them alone. If it's not an emergency, it can wait. You can also use the quiet sofa when an argument goes out of hand, like to calm down after you use the magic word. This way, you're not bringing your battles, negative thoughts and emotions into your calm space. You can put some quiet activities for yourself next to the quiet sofa. Books, crossword puzzles, sudokus, newspapers, magazines, your Kindle. And for your kids, you can prepare children's books, colouring books, puzzles, etc. Try to minimise the use of electronic devices as much as possible. The only exception should be calming or classical music. Quiet sofa's area is also great because you teach your child to take care of themselves, relax and disconnect from the overstimulating world. And if you lead by example, they're more likely to start behaving in a calmer way as well. You can also give your quiet sofas a creative name, like a bumblebee bungalow. You can ask your kids for help with creating one. 
Now go on, create your own quiet sofas and test them out. Day 22. Emotion Verbalization Whenever you get overwhelmed by powerful emotions like anger, you have three options. Act on them. If you're angry, you yell or hit something. Not the best idea if you want to raise your kids in a calm, peaceful way. Suppress them. Not a great idea as they'll build up in you and you'll blow up over time with the possibility of resenting your family members. Verbalize them. The best option as it allows you to get back in control, acknowledge your emotions and regulate them in a healthy way and teach your child how to do the same. I won't lie to you. Over the past 40 years, kids that I worked with made me angry many, many times. But in those moments, I didn't hide my anger, nor did I yell because of it. Instead, I expressed it in a calm, peaceful but firm way. I would say something like, I want to let you know that I'm angry at you right now. I won't yell at you, but I am angry, and we will have to resolve this situation in a calm manner. This lets the kids know how you feel. It lets them see that feeling powerful emotions is okay, and also teaches them that it's possible to not get overwhelmed by them. Then, once you've remained in control, you can either go to the quiet sofa, if you need to calm down further, or use the appropriate no-yelling tool. Next time you feel the anger building up in you, try this strategy out and tell me how it went. Day 23. Free writing. When you feel overwhelmed by your emotions, it's hard to think straight. It can be easy to paint worst-case scenarios in your mind and see no way out, and it can be hard to remain calm and come up with a solution on the spot. In those moments, try getting all the thoughts out of your head. You can do that through a simple but very effective strategy called free writing. Here's how it works. 1. Take a piece of paper, your phone, or open a document on your computer. 2. Start writing down everything that comes to mind. Your inner dialogue. 3. Write as fast as you possibly can. 4. Do not censor yourself. Write down everything. 5. Don't even make any paragraphs. Don't worry about paragraphs. Just write. 6. You will not show this to anyone. This is just for you. Do this for about five minutes or until you feel calm and in control again. A great time to use this strategy is after you use the magic word. After just a few minutes, once you let it all out, you'll see how you'll visibly relax. It will feel like a weight lifting off your shoulders and it will be easier for you to come up with a plan for what to do and what to change in the future. Use this free-flowing form of writing whenever everything feels like too much when you're overwhelmed by emotions, or whenever you're stuck in your head. And as a bonus, you can teach this strategy to older kids who already know how to write. They can use to calm themselves down and improve their emotional regulation. Try it out right now. Set a timer for five minutes and write down everything that's currently on your mind. Day 24. Emergency message. During stressful situations, employing an emergency text can help you regain composure and stay calm. I recommend using this strategy after you use the magic word as an alternative to free writing. It will be especially useful when you just can't stop thinking about what happened or find a solution. To use it, simply open the texting or email app on your phone. Then, put yourself into the shoes of your future self a future version of yourself that has calmed down and worked through this situation successfully. Then, write yourself a letter of advice from your future self's perspective. In the message, 1. 
Be empathetic and loving to yourself. 2. Acknowledge your emotions and struggles. 3. Remember your commitment to becoming a no-yelling parent. 4. Advise what would be good to say to your child. 5. And how you can handle the situation calmly. Here's an example of a message you could send to yourself. Dear Sarah, I understand that you're feeling frustrated right now because Alex is not cooperating. It's natural to feel this way, but let's remember our commitment to being a calm and supportive parent. First, take a moment to collect yourself before addressing the situation. Don't rush it. Have the conversation whenever you're both ready to resolve it. It can be in a few hours or the next day. Remember that Alex is still a child learning to navigate his emotions and may not fully understand the consequences of his actions. Remember to use the no yelling tools you learned. Two good choices. Reconnection protocol. Empathy first. Use the tools you have available instead of yelling. You'll get through this, Sarah. Your goal isn't to be the perfect mum. It's to be 1% better every day. Remember what matters most, your family's happiness. So go on and handle this situation as the best mum you can be. Love your future self. You can also experiment by sending yourself the message while pretending to be someone else. Albus Dumbledore, Wonder Woman, Dalai Lama, or another person you really admire in your life. Even if this sounds silly, try it out at least once. Day 25. Box Breathing. You might have tried deep breathing to calm down and stop yourself from yelling, and there's a pretty high chance it didn't work. Here's why. 1. If you breathe too fast, you'll start hyperventilating, which will energize your body, instead of calming it down. 2. If you place too much focus on the inhale rather than the exhale, you'll experience the same effect. It's not calming. 3. Finally, when you just take deep breaths, you keep thinking about the situation at hand, making it harder for you to calm down. But that doesn't mean that breathing exercises in general are bad. Quite the contrary. After I spent weeks and weeks studying what helps the calmest people in the world stay calm in the midst of chaos, I discovered a technique that worked exceptionally well in stressful situations. This technique is regularly used by Navy SEALs, so you can imagine how well it has to work. It's called box breathing, and it's super simple. You can use it whenever you feel like you're losing control and want to calm yourself down, instead of regular deep breaths or counting to ten. Here's how it works. Inhale slowly for four seconds. Hold your breath for four seconds. Exhale slowly for four seconds. And hold empty lungs for four seconds. Rinse and repeat. As you do this, count in your mind. One, two, three, four. You can also take longer breaths than four seconds, making your counting slightly slower. But don't overcomplicate your life. Counting to four is all you need. Try it out right now. See what happens. Now here's why this technique works so well. It puts you back in control of your breath. By slowing down your breathing, you release the stress and calm down your mind. You also distract your mind from your thoughts when you're counting to four. Within a few rounds of box breathing, you'll feel much more relaxed and composed. And the best part? You can use this technique any time you feel scared or on the verge of panic, whether it's before a challenging interview or during rock climbing if you're afraid of heights. It works. So go on, try it out right now. And try it again next time you want to calm yourself down. Day 26. Zen Breath. 
Yesterday, you learned about the box breathing technique that can help you stay calm in stressful situations. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Your breath, a tool you use every single day, 20R7, is one of the most effective tools you can use to become a calmer, stress-resistant parent. Once you change your breathing patterns, everything becomes easier. You'll be able to be much more relaxed, calm and composed on a daily basis. This means you'll be far less likely to lose it and yell at your kids. And when they really do try to push your buttons, you'll be able to stay calm for much longer. Breathing is a lost art, and there are hundreds of different breathing techniques that you can learn. James Nestor revealed many of them in his best-selling book, Breath, which I highly recommend every parent to read. Unfortunately, many of these techniques do require a daily commitment of practice. And I know how hard it is for you to find extra time in your day when you're already overworked and overwhelmed. You just might not have the time to sit down and do breathing exercises for 30 minutes a day. And you actually don't have to. Instead, you can use a very simple shift in your breathing to get all the calming benefits without investing any extra time at all. You can do that by using what I call the Zen breath. I discovered it when I field-tested hundreds of breathing techniques. This one stood out to me because of how simple and how effective it is. It's inspired by the Ujjayi breath, a breathing pattern yoga practitioners use to stay calm and relax their bodies during extremely challenging yoga poses. Here's how it works. Step number one. Stop breathing through your mouth. We're used to breathing through our mouths, especially when things get hard, when we're hiking, when we're out of breath, and also when we start getting angry, nervous or out of control. The first thing you can do is just stop breathing through your mouth. Step number two, breathe through your nose instead. The second step is to get used to breathing through your nose instead. This might feel unnatural at first, because you might have a stuffy nose, or because you're just not used to it. Think of this as taking one step back to go five steps forward. Step number three, breathe through your throat instead of your nostrils. Once I started testing nose breathing, I quickly discovered that it became more difficult the more physically or stressed out I was, especially when I felt like I was out of breath. I tried to take deep breaths through my nose, but my body just didn't seem like it was getting all the air that it needed. It wasn't relaxing. It was stressful. That's when I discovered the Zen breath. When you breathe through your nose, and especially when you want to take deeper breaths, for example when using box breathing, don't pull the air into your lungs by engaging your nostrils. Instead, keep breathing through your nose, but engage your throat instead. You can even contract your throat slightly so that you hear a slight hum of the air running through it. Try it out right now. Take a few slow, deep inhales and exhales through your nose. Use your throat to push the air in and out. And notice how much more relaxed, calm and in control you immediately feel. Congratulations, you just used the Zen breath for the first time. Now all you need to do is, whenever you catch yourself breathing through your mouth, gently bring yourself back to the Zen breath. Within a week or two it will become automatic for you. You'll notice you'll be much more calm on a daily basis, and you also won't get tired as often. You don't need to dedicate any additional time to this technique in your schedule. You can practice it while going for a walk, while driving your kids to school, while doing the dishes, at any point in your day. Day 27. Progressive Muscle Relaxation You've probably heard of the body and mind connection. This isn't a buzzword. 
Our minds and bodies are more connected than most people think. Think about it. When you experience angry or negative thoughts, or you're under mental stress, what happens to your body? Parts of your body tense up, your shoulders, your back, your neck, your stomach, your thighs. They feel much more firm and tense. And what happens when you feel uncomfortable and tense in your body? You tend to have more negative thoughts. The stress also tends to build up in your body over time, which is why you'll feel more and more pain and discomfort whenever you're experiencing a particularly stressful period of your life. You'll feel tense, snappy, and like you're unable to relax all the time. It's a vicious cycle, and today I'm going to show you how to break it. If you ever went for a massage and felt more relaxed after it, you already experienced the mind and body connection. You released the tension from your body, and your mind was able to become more relaxed as well. The good news is that you don't need to schedule a weekly massage appointment to become more calm and relaxed. Instead, you can use a technique called Progressive Muscle Relaxation, PMR. By contracting and then relaxing your muscles one by one, you'll release physical tension from your body, which will help you de-stress yourself. You can use PMR at any time, in the comfort of your own home or whenever you're starting to feel stressed out. It doesn't require any extra time in your schedule, though if you wish to practice it on a daily basis, as part of your morning, after work or evening routine, you absolutely can. If you'd like to experience a 15-minute guided muscle relaxation to see how it works, you can do so by listening to this video. Then go through the following steps whenever you feel tension in your body. You can follow along as you read through the steps below to experience how PMR feels like, and you'll be more relaxed by the time you finish reading this email. 1. Scan your body from top to bottom. Notice which parts of your body feel particularly tense or tight. Then go through the following steps for the parts of your body that feel more tense than others. 2. Feet and legs. Tighten and release your toes. You can point them down and flex them. Your calves and your hamstrings. Tighten for a few seconds, then release and relax. 3. Bottom and back. Tense and relax your glutes. Round your back as much as you can, then stretch your back as much as you can. 4. Stomach and chest. Tense and relax your chest muscles, upper abs, lower abs and side abs. 5. Arms and hands. Clench your hands into fists. Bend your arm and tense your biceps. Extend your arm and tense your triceps. 6. Shoulders and neck. Lift your shoulders as high as they can go, then lower them down as low as they can go. Lean your head back as far as it goes, then lower it down as far as it goes. Look left, look right. Tilt your head left and right. 7. Face. Open your mouth as wide as you can. Poke your tongue out as far as you can. Put your tongue to the roof of your mouth as hard as you can. Clench your teeth slightly. Close your eyes as tightly as you can. Raise your eyebrows as high as you can. 8. Whole body. Take one slow, deep breath. Count to four. Then, when you feel like you can't breathe in anymore, try to breathe in a bit more. Hold your breath. Count to four. Slowly breathe out. Count to four. Take a few moments to notice just how differently you feel. You don't have to go through the whole sequence every day. Whenever you feel a bit tense in a part of your body, just use that part of the sequence to instantly release tension, relax, and instantly feel more calm. Day 28. Patience Cues Patience isn't something you're born with. It's a skill you can acquire.
One thing that I noticed that makes a big difference in how you react to different situations is the inner monologue you have with yourself. If you speak to yourself in an impatient way, you'll act more impulsively, feel more stressed out, and won't be the best version of yourself as often as you might like to. This is where patience cues come into play. By using them, you'll be able to gently bring yourself back to a moment of calm and become more and more patient every day. Here are a variety of different cues I've seen work best. Number one, calm your mind. You can use this cue whenever your mind starts racing or whenever you feel like you're in a particularly stressful or challenging situation. If your mind can stay calm and controlled, so will you. Number two, focus on your breath. Whenever you catch yourself breathing through your mouth or breathing faster than normally, you can use this cue to bring yourself back to a calm, slow breath. Once you bring the focus to your breath, you can also use the Zen breath and box breathing techniques to put yourself back into a state of calm. Number three, release the tension. Whenever you feel uncomfortable or tense in your body, Use this cue to release the built-up tension. You can combine this cue with the progressive muscle relaxation technique you learned yesterday. Number four, practice, not perfection. Your goal isn't to become the perfect parent overnight. Your goal is to put in the daily practice to become a 1% better parent every day. Remind yourself that as long as you're practicing the use of no yelling tools, emergency protocols and relaxation triggers, things will get better. Number five, slowly, slowly, slowly. Whenever you're using a technique that feels unnatural or counterintuitive for you, or when you start setting boundaries for your kids that aren't used to them, you might face some resistance for the first few times. That's when you can use this cue to remind yourself that you won't get better by trying to go faster. You'll get better by slowing down and making more time and space to parent in a calm, peaceful way. Number six, what's my intention? Whenever things get particularly difficult, ask yourself, what's my intention? You can remember the emergency scale here. What's more important, your kids or a broken glass, your kids or a messy garden? Your kids are all the errands you still need to run today. Ask yourself what's your intention with what you're doing right now. Knowing what the intention is will make it easier to approach stressful situations in a peaceful and patient way. Number seven, it's not torture. If parenting ever feels like a chore or torture, remind yourself that it's not supposed to feel that way. This is a warning sign that what you're doing right now isn't ideal. So change it. Try a different approach. Perhaps a no-yelling tool you haven't tried before. Over time, you'll be able to find a set of strategies that work best for you and your family that allow you to be patient and calm the vast majority of the time. Number eight, it gets worse before it gets better. While this isn't true for most strategies that I shared with you in this program, it's true for some. If your kids are particularly stubborn or strong-willed, if they tend to have anger outbursts when things don't go their way, or just aren't used to any sort of boundaries because you gave in and let them have things their way. There will be a transition period when it comes to using strategies like three-step education and natural consequences. But this transition period will be shorter than you think. Your kids are smart and they learn quickly. If they see that you are firm and quick to act when it comes to non-negotiables, they'll start respecting that sooner than you think. 
The biggest mistake that you can make here is to paint a scenario in your head that this just won't work on your kids because a World War III will ensue if I do it. And then don't give it a shot or give up after you face resistance for the first time. By giving in, you'll make things far more stressful for yourself and your family later on once your kids grow into stubborn teenagers. So try each strategy at least three times with full commitment and remind yourself that it might get worse before it gets better. Number 9. Baby Steps Over the past 28 days, we covered a lot of different strategies and tools. We did that for a reason, so you can find ones that work best for you, and so you're prepared for as many difficult situations the parenting journey brings your way as possible. Don't feel like you have to use all of these every single day. Instead, focus on baby steps. Just use one tool a day and do a little bit better than you did yesterday. Number 10. You are capable of more than you think you are. Number 10. You are capable of more than you think you are. Finally, remind yourself that you are capable of so much more than you think. No matter how difficult your journey is, no matter how rough some days might be, know that you are 100% capable of figuring this out and remind yourself frequently of it. Many of the strategies in this program will trigger a snowball effect. And once you figure out a few key pieces of the puzzle, everything else will start falling into place. So be patient with yourself, with your kids, and with your partner. By living up to your commitment and working through this 28-day challenge, you took the first, the most difficult step. Now, all you need to do is keep the ball rolling and support each other in every way you can. Okay, those are all the patience cues I wanted to share with you today. Try them out and keep using the ones that help you. You can also start using them with your kids or your partner whenever they are facing difficult times in your life. This way, you can become their guiding mentor and biggest supporter, and you'll figure it all out together. Congratulations on completing the 28-day No Yelling Challenge 2.0. Today I'd like to ask you for a quick favor. Can you fill out a quick five-minute survey to let me know how you enjoyed the challenge? You can find it in the last email of the challenge.